0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Black Dog Institute's e-mental health in practice podcast for healthcare professionals, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant e-mental health tools and programs that can assist you in providing clinical care. I'm Phoebe Holdenson-Kamira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast was recorded and produced on the lands of the Darug people, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, their elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 56 on the topic of diabetes and mental health. We had a fantastic group of panelists. Caroline Korineff is a credentialed diabetes educator and somatic psychotherapist who works as an educator for Diabetes Australia. Charlotte Lefner is a practicing dietitian with a Bachelor of Psychology who also works at Diabetes Australia. And Tim Benson was our lived experience representative, having lived with diabetes for many years, and he holds a number of advisory and advocacy roles within diabetes organisations. In this podcast, we discuss specific mental health challenges of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, which includes diabetes distress, fear of hypoglycemia, psychological barriers to treatment, disordered eating, and diabetes burnout. We also talked about tools to support the assessment of diabetes-related mental health issues and discussed a collaborative approach to managing diabetes-related mental health challenges. Finally, we talked about some useful online tools. Tim is one um, uh, Australian uh, who has had diabetes for quite some time, um, and he's uh, uh, very kindly Um, he's kind of joining us um, today to tell us a little bit about his story. Um, Yeah, Tim, can you tell us how it all began and um, how you've been travelling so far?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, It started off as part of a regular visit to my GP who noticed I had a rash and her initial thought was, oh, this is diabetes. Um, So we underwent glucose tolerance testing and one or two other. Um, tests and sure enough that that diagnosis was confirmed I guess the thing for me initially was um, anxiety uh, mm. that you know what was this going to mean for me for the rest of my life I was mm. still you know relatively young um, and you know is it going to mean a complete change of lifestyle you know, am I going to die tomorrow?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, all,
1: all the sort of catastrophic thoughts going through my head, mm. which certainly um, were mildly depressing and but certainly caused a lot of anxiety. Mm. Um, going on from that, um, I put a lot of effort into finding out about what diabetes was mm-hmm. um, and, and the potential uh, pathway forward. Um, with, um support from my, my GP um and I guess over the years I've learned how to, how to manage my diabetes um, without too much stress because stress stress I noticed is one of the things that um, caused the numbers to go uh, totally um, in, in the wrong direction yeah um, and so uh yeah it was just a you know the 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 path was varied. it went through managing it by lifestyle changes, you know mild changes to my diet, more significant changes to my exercise, um and then we went on to oral medications and then we went on to injectables. and each time there was a change, there was a for me a oh, it's getting worse. this is going to mean something more drastic down down the track. And Mm. I think getting that anxiety building up again. Mm. So it was a it it was it was a very bumpy journey.
0: And certainly that bumpy journey, but also I can hear from you that there was a sense of control that you gained from from learning more about um, living with diabetes um, and, and getting more confident. Um, in yourself, sure. but also that bi-directional impact, isn't it? That the diabetes had an impact on your mental health, but also that you saw a direct correlation when you started getting stressed, um, that, that impacted your diabetes control. And yeah, I think that that's ab- a very ab-
1: ab- absolutely. And um,
0: so Tim, can you tell us a little bit about um the people who've helped you along in the journey?
1: Sure. I mean, obviously my family were have, have been very supportive and um non-judgmental which has been was really helpful in Mm. the beginning um i i I joined a um group um a diabetes um reference group associated with diabetes wa very shortly after i was diagnosed and one of the things that i found from joining this group was you know i wasn't alone and some of these people have been diagnosed for many many years um, and they were still you know Get, living a fairly normal life. Mm. A- a- acknowledging the fact that they did have some minor modifications, but basically a normal life. Mm. So, I, so that that helped calm my 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 fears, I guess, mm. um, that uh, there were um, the, there, w- there was a, a way out in a mm. Mm. and um, I mentioned my GP before, and i um I have to say that she was extremely helpful gave me a lot of time uh, to just go through the various issues with me as, as we went down the path. So, um, yeah, so family support groups and 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 your healthcare team, I think, are really important.
0: Mm. Thank you, Tim, and it's quite fantastic to hear that you had such a supportive uh, group with you on the journey because it is hard work, isn't it? Oh, yes. um, yeah, it's really hard work. So we know, as you've mentioned just then, Tim, that you need a team around you. Um, and, and I guess for everybody, that team looks slightly different. But um, Charlotte, could you talk us through uh, some of the people, that the, the professionals that can um, support a person with diabetes?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we can see that really there's lots of health professionals involved in supporting someone with diabetes. But um, what our graphic here is trying to show that ultimately the person with diabetes should really be like the captain of the ship um, and the centre of their their diabetes management. Um, As health professionals who work in diabetes all the time, sometimes I think we forget that it's a very complex condition. So uh, people require a lot of guidance when they're diagnosed, and and also in an ongoing manner. So we really want that team support there. Um, I think some of the studies show that the highest level of, or well, sometimes the highest level of stress with diabetes is related to some of the long term complications. Um, So having these specialists in the corner who can um, screen for those diabetes related complications and potentially provide reassurance that people are doing everything they can to uh, prevent issues or detect issues and get onto them really quickly could be a very um, helpful thing. Um, And I think from an allied health perspective, you know, allied health professionals can help with maybe discussing some of the the lifestyle factors that people may choose to or may choose not to put in place to help with their diabetes management.
0: I guess what the data does show um, is that in Australia, nearly 50% of people with diabetes have experienced mental health challenges in the last 12 months.
3: Caroline, what are your thoughts on that statistic? Yeah, I must admit that I was also a little bit surprised that it wasn't more than 50%. Mm. Um, It's certainly, um, I think, in a lifetime nearly everybody with diabetes will end up having a mental health challenge at some point Mm. or another. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but in a 12-month period, um, yeah, about half, and that's still significant enough, isn't it? No wonder we're all so busy. That's exactly right. (laughs)
0: Alrighty, Tim's already sort of uh, touched on this a little bit with his description of what he called the bumpy journey, where at the time of diagnosis, but also every time that his um, treatment got uh, escalated, he would again have those same thoughts about what his life was going to look like, and particularly focusing on those um, uh, organ complications. Um, Tim, What's What's been, do you have anything else that you wanted to add to that idea? Well, yeah, um, I, th- I think
1: um, I've already talked about what happened for me at the time of diagnosis, mm. um, but every time we had a change in medication, to me that was an indication that the condition was worsening mm. um, and that we had to do something a little bit more uh, virulent to uh, get it under control, and, and with that went the Again, that fear of the situation is getting worse. I'm going to have some significant impact. Um, I might, I'm, I might have a shorter lifespan, and all of those sorts of um, scary thoughts, I guess, going through my head. Mm. All, all of which made me particularly anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thought that, um, you know, maybe I'm going to Lose a foot, or I'm going to go blind, or mm. um, any of the other sort of um, serious complications that uh, can were. It was quite depressing that um, that was going to be in my future, but mm. it was or it wasn't. That was the the, the potential thought, I guess. Mm. Mm. Um, and you know, other situations um, such as if one of my friends. Who had diabetes had a really bad patch, which might have led to some significant uh, deterioration in their in, in the future of their um, their their lifestyle or their life path. Um, all of these things were um, triggers of this um, anxiety and, and and mild depression. Mm, mm,
0: mm. Thank you for sharing that, Tim, uh, and I. Uh, we've had a comment in the chat box from Donna saying, yes, Tim, it feels a bit like a downhill from there once medications are started. Um, Caroline, I'm interested to know from you whether you encounter that very much and what's your advice for us, um, you know, trying to help our patients who might have that sort of catastrophic thinking around, well, this is the beginning of the end.
3: Yeah, I, I, I do see quite a few patients that are reluctant to start on medications because of those sort of beliefs. Um, and what I often then explain to them, in particularly say medication like Metformin, um, that that has been proven to actually slow the progression of type 2 diabetes. Um, for example, in the um, Diabetes Prevention Programme, and, um, and I often make a little bit of a joke and I said, look, I think we should just get that stuff added to the tap water because we all benefit from it because it slows the progression of pre-diabetes to diabetes mm-hmm. and slows the progression of development of complications. And I find that that sort of type of explanation often helps people to realize that it's not the end of the world. Mm. The other thing I think that's really important in here is um, is how we approach this. Too often do I hear um, and I'm afraid to say this, but particularly doctors say, you know, oh they're in secondary failure. And mm. that is such a negative way of putting it that the person will feel like yes, I'm a failure and, and hence they well might as well give up right because mm. what's the point? I've done everything I could, everything in my power, and yet it's gotten worse. So obviously I'm not good enough or or words to that effect. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I certainly
0: know that a lot of clinicians use the threat of end organ complications as a way to try and motivate people around their diabetes control. Um, But yeah, I think it probably just adds to adds to the you know adds to the stress of it all um basically being told off by somebody yeah
3: yeah and some people will just throw their hands up in the air and say well if i'm going to be stuffed anyway then what's the point of of doing all this hard work you know <laughs> if if that's all doom and gloom from here anyway yeah. but it's not you know there's so yeah. much we can do to help prevent um development of complications or or to to nip them in the butt when they when they do rear their ugly head. You yeah,
1: know. I yeah. think that's really important, Caroline. That um, sort of having a somebody good in your support team that you know can really get you to understand that you know the end is not nigh just because you've you know got some bad readings this time. That's
0: right. Yeah, um, Charlotte, what do you see in your clinical practice?
2: Um, so yeah, so I mean, we can see mental health challenges arise at any time um, with. When someone's living with diabetes so um, I think often we receive referrals when HBA1C has gone up or fasting levels have increased and um, often that can be just a result of the natural progression of diabetes but also it can happen because people have been going through a truly difficult period in their life. So I just think it's really important during those times to to really reach out and ask the person if, you know, they're aware that their HbA1c is increasing, can they think of any reason of why that happened? And usually um, you get a lot of information and um, then we need to really assess where that person is at that moment in time and what they're capable of. So, you know, it's often not the time if they're going through a period of grief or something really serious to then talk about making drastic dietary changes (laughs) or, you know, start, you know, doing fasting or whatever. Um, So, yeah, just setting these sort of like realistic targets and setting people up for success, I think is an important part of our our role.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, so actually, I think think once we ask people what they think might have been going on um, in the last few months relating to their HBO1C, almost always they'll be able to tell us um, that there's been something stressful going on in their life that's derailed things and, and they know, you know. So they just need support to get back on track, essentially, rather than to be told off. Diabetes distress is the emotional burden of living with and managing diabetes. Caroline, can you tell us a bit uh, more about diabetes distress?
3: Yes, well, as, as many of us know, you know, living with a chronic condition such as diabetes does really take its turn long term uh, because there is so many extra demand so in diabetes there is the you know ongoing um, checking of blood glucose levels taking medications or insulin injections it may be attending uh, medical appointments um, and there's often additional medical appointments such as your optometrist or or dentist to make sure that we in an effort to try and prevent development of complications um, and and despite all of that you know it's, problems still raise their their heads and they still occur so and um, that may lead to the person and feeling that they're failing their diabetes management um, it's very very common to hear people complain about you know my sugar level was fine after mm-hmm. after dinner and then when i woke up in the morning it was higher it got, mm-hmm. went from 7.2 to 8.5 i don't get it you yeah. know and and i mean there is a lot of reasoning behind that, why that might have happen. Um, but the person might not necessarily understand it. And they take it personally and they, they think it's their fault that they've done something wrong. And um, there's so much that can happen. Like Charlotte said, other things in life happen too that can contribute to glucose levels rising. And there, there'll be a time that it just gets too much. And in fact, I often say that to people, you know, it happens to everybody at least once that they wake up one day and they go, well, stuff this. I don't want to do this anymore. And I grab that glucose meter and I just want to chuck it in the corner and I've never to look at it again. Um, it's, a, it's a common common problem that, that happens because they just get so distressed with it and it could lead to burnout as well.
0: mm mm Yeah, and you'd never have, um, you never really take a holiday uh, from having a chronic illness, isn't it? And Wendy said in in the chat box, you know, the twenty four hourness of type one diabetes is particularly exhausting. We know quite a bit about the prevalence of diabetes distress and depression in people living with diabetes. Fifty to seventy percent of people with diabetes have neither diabetes distress nor depression. 5 to 15% have both diabetes, distress and depression. 20 to 30% have diabetes distress without depression and 5 to 10% have depression without diabetes distress. It's important to tease out what the underlying issue and diagnosis is, as they can often look quite similar on the surface, but the treatment approach is different between the two. What are some of the signs of diabetes distress that we might observe as a clinician?
3: Um, yes, yeah, so so one of the things could be that they um, actually cancelled our appointments at the 11th hour uh, because, you know, they've just so distressed that, that it's just too much. Um, they may also withdraw themselves from, from work or social activities. Um, they may um, seek refuge or, or um, support in other, other ways. So for example, by, um, by their, um, their little trips to the fridge for um, little food for comfort or something like that, it can lead to sexual health problems. Um, and yeah, e- it emotionally, it, it, they'll lose interest in day-to-day activities, things that usually they enjoy doing. Um, they can just feel so defeated and helpless, feeling overwhelmed, and just be constantly worrying. Um, And that then can lead to, like I said earlier, them not following through on their self-management behavior, such as taking medications regularly Mm. or taking insulin. And particularly in type one diabetes, there is then that uh, increased risk of um, diabetic ketoacidosis developing, which is a very real and very serious uh, medical condition. Um, and so, yeah, it's important that we provide people with the support when you recognise any of these um, sort of um, changes in their in their being. Just acknowledging that for young people, um,
0: the the challenges are sometimes greater. Um, they're still um, trying to understand who they are, and their bodies and their minds are still in that process of development. And um, particularly if they're diagnosed with type one diabetes, uh, then um, then the parents are going to be very involved in both monitoring and administering insulin, um, and that has its whole a whole mother layer of anxiety uh, and and um, and worry. I think. Uh, and so, as treating clinicians, we're really having to think not just about the mental health of the young person, but also their support people. I think, um, Caroline, what do you see, Caroline? What do you see in your
3: in your experience? Yeah, a mixture of all of it really um, because what, just when I heard you talk about the parents definitely, you know, they, they often struggle with that as well and I think for a lot of parents um, there is these sort of feelings of guilt mm. um, because diabetes can run in families and it's um, got that sort of genetic predisposition so they feel guilty that they gave it to their child. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time I'm also thinking this child, though, if they're very young at diagnosis, they not don't necessarily get the education. it's often then given to the parents. So then later on, as they grow up and turn into teenagers, um they will struggle sometimes more um, because they transition. Missing, yeah, um, they're missing. they're having gaps in their education and support system. And
2: I think as well, um, one thing to consider is with some of these new technologies like the continuous glucose monitors and flash monitors, often that data can be linked up to a parent's phone. And so you can imagine what it's life as, like as a child trying to live your life with your mum or dad constantly yeah. having readings yeah. of your levels and calling you all the time. And it's just it really, I guess, um, impacts the childhood they're able to have.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and in addition to that, even as adults, there is so much data that comes your way. Yeah, you know, when you use these kind of um, technological technological pieces, um, that people can develop distress and and burnout from from all that data. Um, so, yeah, sometimes um, a, a little bit of a holiday can make a big difference. And although we can't get the holiday from diabetes, maybe we can give them a little bit of a holiday from monitoring, for Old example. Monitoring. And yeah. Um, yeah, so for a child that maybe that maybe a parent might take over again for a little while to give the child a bit of a break from having to do it, older children then, because um, obviously the real young ones, they, they definitely need that support. Um, but even for adults it may be um, you know turning the cgm off for a while and going back to finger pricking uh, a couple of times a day just to keep an eye on things but not necessarily every meal before and after um that sort of, of thing
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it it's always um uh I guess, seen it's often talked about as a very positive thing. And certainly in the chat box, there's been people saying that it's been life changing, the CGM. Uh, so it certainly gives people a lot more sense of control, um, particularly with hypos. I think it gives people a reassurance about what's happening with their sugars overnight. So that's amazing. But yeah, there's that other part where, you know, people living with diabetes are under a fair amount of uh, sort of scrutiny anyway, you know, they're used to people commenting on what they eat and, you know, what they're doing or watching them, you know, prick themselves or whatever. Uh, But yeah, that CGM aspect uh, sort of just adds another layer of scrutiny potentially into that system. Mm. So I guess um, we're probably all asking ourselves, how do we go about trying to monitor for this? Uh, as clinicians in our patients we know that um, you know people might show some of those signs that Caroline was just telling us about of of, you know disengagement or change you know change behaviors or eating or things like that but um, I guess to have a bit more of a consistent approach the recommendation would either be to use um, a questionnaire validated questionnaire like Um, the paid or the diabetes distress scale, or to be asking on a fairly regular basis, similar questions. Um, The problem areas in distress questionnaire is a 20 item questionnaire. um, And the diabetes distress scale is similar. And interestingly, um, is broken into four quad, um, four domains, including physician related distress. And that's talking about, um, the distress that people feel coming in contact with the healthcare system. Uh, Charlotte, what's been your experience with those, um, questionnaires?
2: Yeah. So, um, we use the paid questionnaire, um, when we, before we do this five day, uh, diabetes course for adults with type one diabetes, uh, and, um, we found in studies that about 29% of people indicated they had severe diabetes distress. Uh, and interestingly, at the end of the program, uh, that had dropped down to 13%. And these are really large-scale studies. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, more education and information is one major factor in helping reduce people's distress around diabetes. Mm. Um, And also it's interesting because I would speak to people for an hour about how they manage their diabetes on the phone before these programs and they might come across as this really um, informed, cool cucumber and then suddenly you can get these paid questionnaires back that are quite shocking and you think, oh, my goodness, this person's really actually suffering and you Mm -hmm. wouldn't have known unless they'd been asked some really specific questions in relation to that.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, yeah. Goes to show that if we don't ask, we don't know. And and I don't think it matters whether we're using a formal scale or whether we just read through that scale and choose, you know, pick and choose a few of those questions uh, to pepper throughout our um, consultation with patients. But what we're really wanting to do here is early on to normalize talking about diabetes distress, that it is something that happens to a lot of people, uh, normalize the distress itself. Um, and try and get to the bottom of where that distress is coming from. So find trying to work out um, what what in particular is hard about living with diabetes, and um, but also not um, not to focus too much on the negatives, uh, and also um, trying to spend a bit of time um, having a strength based approach, which is to say, what's going well right now? What are you happy with? Um, and um, honouring that person's um, efforts um, to manage their diabetes because it's really, really hard work.
1: Mm, I think you made a really good point there, Phoebe, about not necessarily going through the tests in um, mm. a formal way but sort of asking some key questions because I think from a uh, a person living with diabetes perspective, the thought of having a, a structured yes. care sort of thing is in itself quite... Um, terrifying, and you sort of wonder what the uh, underlying thing is. Whereas specific questions coming up in conversation is is far less threatening.
0: Mm, mm. And I think that's why a lot of us probably aren't using it, is because we have a sense that it could be a bit clunky to use, or our patients might not really be that comfortable with it. Um, and so that's completely fine. I think we're not trying to say that everybody should be using the questionnaire, but more just that uh, that we need to be asking those questions in some way or other. So we talked quite a bit about diabetes distress. Um, Charlotte, can you tell us a bit about some of those other diabetes-related mental health challenges?
2: Yeah. Sure. So um, diabetes burnout is often something that might come after a period of diabetes distress. And that's often when people start to feel just emotionally exhausted uh, by the demands of diabetes and that constant vigilance that's required to manage diabetes. Um, and that usually presents as people kind of checking out a bit uh, and perhaps not checking their blood glucose levels or not attending medical appointments. Um, some of the fears around hyphos. So we have people so worried about having hypos, particularly those who live alone, uh, that they'll choose to run their blood sugar levels much higher to really mitigate that risk. So that might look like, um, you know, not great numbers to a doctor or a healthcare professional, but they can be. Psychological reasons behind that. Um, some of the psychological barriers to treatment can be people say, as an example, with type 2 diabetes, really not wanting to go into insulin. Mm. Um, just thinking, you know, that means that it's progressed very far, or I failed, or I just really don't want to have to use needles. Mm. Um, and also, you know, we see a lot of chatter online about um, people having concerns about medication side effects, like even metformin, which we consider very safe. Um, a lot of people on sort of diabetes forums will talk about them it destroying kidneys and livers. And mm, it's uncommon for people to right. yeah, come in and, and tell me, like, you know, the doctors prescribe me this, but I'm not taking it because I've read this.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and then, lastly, with disordered eating, we know that certainly some people fall into a category of um, eating disorders, which would fit a diagnostic criteria, but that's generally a fairly small amount of people. Um, but a really vast number of people have disordered eating behaviours. So um, that can be like, you know, punishing yourself for overeating with maybe excess exercise or skipping the next meal or fasting for long periods of time. Um, It can be really uh, assigning negative labels to certain foods or um, strictly avoiding certain foods um, or even just periods of um, eating that doesn't feel within their control. Um, so like a lot of the time after diagnosis people will come in to see me and think that there's certain foods they can never eat ever again Mm. Um, you can imagine the headspace that that puts you in you're not going to have a healthy relationship with food if you think there's things that are forever off limits to you and at some point you're going to break and you're going to eat it and then you know how are you going to feel when that happens
0: it sounds to me like you see a fair bit of disordered eating in your practice Charlotte with people with diabetes
2: And and often people, um, not often, but it's not uncommon for people with type 2 diabetes to have had really long histories of dieting and um, concerns with their weight that they've developed this really complex um, relationship with food where they no longer trust themselves to be able to make good decisions and they no longer know um, who to believe and what information is accurate. So um, there's a lot of unpacking to do usually.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm um and i know that a lot of um a lot of uh, patients when they're given advice about their diabetes are encouraged to lose weight as part of their treatment plan what's what's your approach to that as a dietitian
2: yeah so um I, on my initial intake form I just have a question that um, asks them if they know what their weight is and this next question is whether they want to discuss their weight during the consult because some people are so keen to have that conversation but equally other people don't want to talk about their weight mm-hmm. and I think whether you're a dietitian or another healthcare provider we can offer people options that we know will help improve their blood sugar management or Um, their overall health without it having to be about weight Mm. so I think you can navigate around it it doesn't need to be the focus and often if people start implementing healthier behaviors the weight comes off organically itself so Mm. it doesn't have to be this thing that we are measuring constantly and trying to predict how much kilo someone will lose for a certain amount of time Um, we could just try to go for health gains and getting these great habits in place rather Mm -hmm. than weight loss being the focus and the only thing we're really aiming for.
3: It's important that we show that we care, care being an acronym for being curious, accurate, respectful and showing empathy. And we do that, for example, by not talking about testing mm. um you know testing your blood means that you either pass or you fell but as you've probably mentioned or noticed already we talk about blood glucose monitoring or checking the levels uh, because that way the, the person will just have the sense of okay we're just seeing where are we at right now um, without sort of any further judgment i think that is very important and that's just one example um yeah not, not calling them a diabetic, um, for example, is another one. There's no such thing as a diabetic diet. Yeah, it's a healthy eating plan. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's all those sort of different things. And there's actually a whole um, document put together by Diabetes Australia that will help you in, um, in your language um, when working with people with diabetes. Mm.
0: So, as health practitioners, many of us are going to be familiar with the 5A models of behaviour change, uh, but Diabetes Australia, um, has a seven A's model um, around talking to patients about their emotional and mental health problems routinely as part of diabetes, routine diabetes care. Um, Caroline, can you just talk us through this and how, how we can use it in our practice?
3: Yeah, so as you, know, you probably noticed with Diabetes Australia, we'd like to take it that one step further or maybe the <laughs> two, seven seven a's instead of five Um, but i think that the most important thing to mention here is that um, it is about recognizing your your skills and and if you feel that something is outside of your scope and you feel the need to refer a person on that's absolutely fine just make sure that you communicate to the person the reasons behind it Um, because sometimes people can misinterpret that. If you're too quick to sort of um, go, oh, uh, yeah, you've got mental health issues, here's a referral to a psychologist, Mm. a person is less likely to follow through with that because they think there's something wrong with them and the, the psychologist wouldn't want to have to deal with that for sure Um, whereas you know if we can actually have a more sort of in-depth conversation with them about okay i'm I'm noticing that you're struggling with this and i feel out of my depth to give you the support that you need but i know that there is this other person who can provide you with that type of support um you know that's a really important one and also then to to check up with them again afterwards So arrange that follow up care. Don't leave them in the lurch. Just make sure that, um, that yeah they they've had the support that they need.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think, Tim,
1: of this model? Do you like it? I do like it. And one of the things that I, whilst I accept that it's designed for um, clinicians, I, I think it's a, a useful thing for uh, the clinicians to share with um, the person that they're they're dealing with, the the person who's got the diabetes, because. It sort of gives you a, a bit of a guidance of mm. you know what what options are available. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It sort of destigmatizes the whole problem as well, I think, by just showing that yeah, there's a pathway here and lots of people need to use it. So yeah. All righty. So we're sort of reaching towards the end of the webinar, and you might be thinking to yourself, you know oh i'd love to learn more about this and certainly we've only just scratched the surface tonight Uh, if you're interested in learning more about diabetes and emotional health there's a fantastic guide from ndss um, that's um, got a lot of detailed um, advice um, and and algorithms and things like that for you to be able to use in your clinical practice
3: some great examples on how the 7a model is put into practice as well actually yeah
0: you may also be thinking that you might want to upskill a little on diabetes care itself, and there's a wonderful suite of online short courses available for health professionals at diabetesqualified.com.au. NDSS, um, you may not know, actually has a helpline um, that is staffed by dietitians, diabetes educators, exercise physiologists and a counsellor. Uh, so if you do... Uh, realize that a patient of yours is suffering from depression or diabetes distress or eating disordered eating whatever it might be this might be a nice way um, as a holding place for them to be able to get a little bit more professional input Uh, uh, um, and uh, we also Tim talked, talked to us a lot about the role that peer support has played Um, in keeping him well over the last uh, 20 something years. Uh, And so um, the NDSS website has uh, instructions on how to find your local peer support groups. In terms of e-mental health resources, there are two wonderful resources that might be of interest to you. The first is part of the My Compass program from the Black Dog Institute, um, which is actually a much larger program uh, of self-administered questionnaires, but also treatment programs. But embedded within that is a three-module um, program called Doing What Really Counts uh, for People with Diabetes, and this is really fantastic. It helps people to do values um, values orientated work and working out what really matters to them uh, with their diabetes and mental health. Uh, we've also got a Queensland University of Technology uh, program called On Track. Uh, diabetes which is an online program for people who have type 2 diabetes um, helping to support people to take care of both their health and their mood uh, and was developed by a group of gps psychologists and a healthcare research team so i'd really encourage you to have a look at both of those i hope you've enjoyed this podcast on mental health and diabetes a big thank you to caroline charlotte and tim for sharing your expertise and experience with us all the resources and services that we have discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website under the eMental Health page under webinar 56. Thank you so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.